How many are ready to hear the word of God this morning? Amen. Well, I have a, I have a teaching that, uh, you know, I myself, I'm not sure. Um, the full meaning, God's full intent for uh, this uh, passage. And uh, I, I just know that it needs to be preached. I just know that it needs to be declared. And in a sense, I'm not preaching it as much as uh, prophesying it. Um, you know, there, there are things that God puts in our hearts that, that need to be announced, that they need to be brought into time and space. And, and that is the, the power of the prophetic word. Not only does it announce uh, an intention that God has, but it also releases that intention. It's like a declaration uh, that initiates something uh, that the Holy Spirit wants to birth in the human realm. So it doesn't just uh, declare in the sense of saying something or, in, or informing about something, but it also has actual power to release and to initiate and to, un, uh, to unleash God's intent. And, and I think that this is the, that kind of word. You know, I, um, by the way, it's found in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, Isaiah 36 and 37. Um, two, two Fridays ago, I think it was, we had a, a time of uh, prayer, a special time of prayer uh, in the, the Latino group. And um, we, we were up there on the fourth floor. And, you know, as, as the time of uh, prayer began, I, I felt uh, this attraction to this particular passage in Isaiah 36 and 37. And I, I, as, as the time went on, I, I felt that I needed to share it with the congregation, with the group that was there. Again, I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to say, really. I didn't know in what direction I was going to go. I had no idea, really, of what God wanted to say about that passage and why it was important. But I just knew that I had an urge to, um, to announce, to prophesy that uh, passage. And, and I, I told the, the group gathered that that's what I was going to do. I was just, I, so I just stood up there. And, I, you know, it's a, it's a long passage. It's a long text. Very complex in many ways. I didn't want to take too much time either at that moment, but um, I just felt that I had to open my mouth and let the passage lead me. And so, you know, as I began uh, releasing the passage and sharing it with the congregation, many interesting, and nothing more than interesting, um, I, I thought powerful uh, truths came out of it, not because of me, but because of, you know, the Holy Spirit that was releasing this word, and um, I, I felt uh, at the end of it that I had accomplished what the Lord wanted me to do, and uh, I, I really felt that I had delivered more than I expected when I began uh, to unravel that passage. And um, afterwards, a few of the deacons who were there, they, they wrote to me, and uh, they urged me to share it with the general congregation, with the entire congregation. And this is what I want to do. And, and again, as I say, I, even after reflecting on it for a good while, I'm, I'm not sure of what God's total intent is in this passage. He may be declaring something that is for now. He may be declaring something for the near future. Um, but I do know that it has a lot of uh, anointed content and that somehow I need to announce it and, and prophesy it. And then I let the Lord do what he always does. He doesn't allow his word to fall to the ground empty, it says, or to return to him uh, void. But he, it does, the word does what it has been sent to do. So um, I want to be compact because, as I say, it's a long passage. But um, the, the essence of this passage, I, I, and I, I won't read in, in the beginning. Um, and I'll read a few verses as I go um, along. Uh, this passage uh, ushers us into a uh, moment of crisis, a moment of crisis in the life of uh, a king of uh, Judah named King Hezekiah, Hezekiah. And uh, King Hezekiah was one of the few just, good, pious kings of Israel. You know that at this time when Hezekiah reigns, uh, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There was a division. There was a civil war. Not necessarily a war, but it was just a division. Years, years before, uh, before, after the reign of King Solomon, 
And Israel was divided into two nations, two kingdoms. They had some relationship with each other. Sometimes they were in tension with each other. But essentially, they knew that they were part of one nation. But really, they were two kingdoms and two kings and two governments. It was the kingdom of the north, which is called Israel. And that's, that can be confusing, confusing sometimes because they were both Israel. But the king of the north was uh, called Israel. And its capital was uh, Samaria. The king of the south was called Judah. And its capital, of course, was Jerusalem. And by the way, uh, Ju- the, the kingdom of Judah had many more just kings than, than the kingdom of um, Israel, the north. And uh, actually, the kingdom of Israel, the north, was um, conquered by the Babylonians before the kingdom of Judah was ultimately conquered as well. Judah held out for a much longer period of time. And part of it, I think, was just God's mercy. Judah had some good kings uh, to support it and people who, who really knew the Lord. Hezekiah was one of those, uh, quote-unquote, uh, good kings. Um, but despite uh, his being uh, a pious man, a man of God, and the Bible says that he actually he, uh, few kings, I, I think it says even that no one like him after David had a heart for God. Now, uh, at one point, you know, the Bible tells us, and, and this story, by the way, it's interesting because this, this story that is in uh, chapters 36 and 37 can also be found in uh, Second uh, Chronicles, I think it is. The same passage, and it's interesting that this Isaiah book, being a prophetic book, a book of prophecy, somehow there's inserted in it this uh, passage about um, history. It, it, it's a, and, and, and it is the same passage that you find also in that other book. And, uh, you know, it tells us that Hezekiah was responsible for a huge um, revival. Judah had been involved in lots of um, idolatry and uh, worship of false gods. And uh, King Hezekiah, uh, when he comes into the kingdom, and he came at a very young age, he is uh, indignant by um, Judah's uh, idolatry. And he takes all the gods and uh, destroys them, and um, he uh, raises to the ground all the altars and uh, reinitiates the worship of the one true God, Jehovah. And uh, it, it cost him a lot. It was a, a very big effort, but he installed again the worship of the one true God in Judah. And God uh, blessed him and approved of him because of that courage that he had to initiate. Uh, or reinitiate the worship of the one true God. And so, you know, one would think that, wow, this king that uh, uh, destroys these idols, that, that uh, does so much to install again the worship of the one true God, would be sort of free f- from then on of every problem, every difficulty, every trial. Actually, it's the very opposite. After he does this, uh, there is an invasion of Judah on the part of the king of Assyria, a very powerful kingdom, more powerful than the Babylonians, actually. At one point, they conquered Babylonia. And um, there's a, a siege of the city. But, you know, let's not miss that point. The fact that this king, really what he was doing when he, when he is uh, destroying these altars, he is making a very serious declaration of war against the powers of hell, against the demonic powers that are behind every form of idolatry and that claim for themselves the worship that only the one true God should have. So I think that begins to explain a little bit of why this king that is so pious, so loving of God, would face all of a sudden this huge attack on the part of this very powerful army. And, you know, it is one thing that that we should always bear in mind. When you choose to live righteously before God, when you choose to to honor the Lord, when you make a declaration of war against Satan's hold on your life, you should expect that there will be some sort of reaction on the part of the enemy. It doesn't mean that we should be paranoid. I don't think that it happens every time. But I think that when you're being effective against uh, Satan and his kingdom, the enemy is going to try to neutralize you. He's going to try to bring war. He's going to try to bring suffering. He's going to try to 
um, confuse you. He's going to try to uh, make you so concerned and to, to bring agony into your life in such a way that he will neutralize you. And we should always be aware of that. The fact that you love the Lord, the fact that you are doing things for the Lord will never exempt you from facing trials and tribulations. The enemy will often try to neutralize precisely those that God is blessing and that God is approving and that God is using. So this, um, this siege, this attack against um, uh, Hezekiah and his kingdom should not really take us by surprise. And it's important that I set that up, this aspect of a spiritual warfare on the part of people who are serving the Lord, because that, has a, that will have a lot of meaning as we unfold this uh, passage. So we see the king of Syria coming in. And, and Marlene, if you want to put it every once in a while one of those verses on top, you know, just follow so that people can get a sense as I, as I preach. That's fine too. You can put verse 2 and verse 3 and so on. So let's look at this scene for, the, for a moment. One day, all of a sudden, this army just begins to move toward Israel, toward Jerusalem. And uh, the king of Assyria with an immense army of hundreds of thousands of men, horses, chariots, tents, and so on and so forth, appears before uh, the entire people of Israel and of Jerusalem. And um, out steps the general of this Assyrian king, Sennacherib. And uh, he begins to, uh, and, and three delegates from the city of Jerusalem come out and meet with the king. And the king, uh, or rather the, the, the general, the, the king's general, and he begins, this man who has a spirit of, um, uh, how should I say it? It's a spirit of blasphemy. He has a controversy with God. And he begins to threaten the people of Jerusalem, and he begins to tell them what is going to happen to them. And so the field commander, verse 4, said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, On what are you basing this confidence of yours? It's a good question for us. On what do we base our confidence? When we are struggling in life, when we are facing difficult situations, when we are uh, facing something that we really want to do, uh, we have a plan, a project, uh, an ambition, a holy ambition before the Lord for our lives and so on and so forth. Whom are we placing our confidence on? Whom are we believing on to deliver us, to advance us, to give us the power to do what we want to do? And so he says, first of all, you know, you guys are depending on Egypt and, and you have an alliance with Egypt to protect you. You have a, a sort of a common defense pact with Egypt. Don't trust in Egypt. They're not powerful enough to deal with us. And then he goes on in verse 7, and he says, but if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, and that's what would be expected of, you know, a pious God-fearing king like Hezekiah and his people. We are depending on the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? That's a lie, because actually Hezekiah removed, I think, the, the, evidently the king, uh, king, um, Sennacherib is confused. Hezekiah did remove altars, but they weren't the altars of Jehovah. They were the altars of these false gods. Um, isn't he the, uh, the, the king whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? He, he, and, and throughout this entire uh, struggle, you see uh, this king um, saying, God will not be able to deliver you. We are too powerful. Your God cannot get you out of this difficult situation. Um, and, and he goes even further in verse 10. He says, furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Another lie of the enemy. This time he's saying, hey, I'm here because God himself has sent me. All of this is calculated, again, uh, to instill fear, to shake the confidence of um, these people, to uh, fill them with terror and fear uh, about the, just the power of this king. Down in verse uh, 14, it says, this is what the king says, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely Deliver us. This city will not be given 
into the hand of the king of Assyria. Verse 18, do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hands of the king of Assyria? Verse 20, who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And if you look at uh, the entire chapter 36 and 37, you see uh, this, uh, the, the haughtiness, the, the arrogance, um, you know, just the, the self-assurance of this general speaking on behalf of uh, this uh, king, uttering all of these blasphemies and all of these insults toward God and saying time and time again, your God cannot deliver you. We are too powerful. We have done this to many other nations and their gods were not able to deliver them. So why do you think that your God will somehow enable you to escape your fate? And you know, this is, this is part of the whole disinformation uh, campaign of Satan. When he wants to possess, when he wants to control, the first thing that he does is he engages in psychological warfare, disinformation, um, intimidation, And this is something that we, we need to be aware when we're fighting our battles. You know, uh, I have learned over the years that the, the, the place of the greatest struggle is in the mind. It's in our minds, in our thought life. It is the, the thing that we most need to protect and to cover with the blood of Christ. And uh, there comes a time when we are engaged in spiritual warfare that we cannot trust our emotions, we cannot trust our thoughts, we cannot trust our psychological calculations, because the enemy is perfectly able to wrap us in a, in a web of self-doubt, self-questioning, and, and uh, mire us in a, a mud of um, fear, and even the Bible begins to speak against us. This is the, 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 the way the Satan is able to manipulate our minds, our thought life. And this is why when we are fighting these battles in our life, the first thing that we need to do is commit our mind, commit our emotions to the care of the Holy Spirit. We cannot trust the course of our thoughts Because I don't ask me how, but Satan is able to often manipulate our thoughts and to enter us into a cell, into a prison of self-reflecting thoughts of fear, destruction, tribulation, impotence. And this is what he specializes in. And so one of the things that I see here is, is you know, in one, in one place, um, uh, when, when the general is speaking with these three messengers that come out, these, these three envoys that come out uh, of Jerusalem to negotiate with this general, uh, he starts, you know, blaspheming against God and saying all these things that he's going to do to the Israelites and so on. And um, the, the envoys uh, say to the general, hey, come on, lower your voice. Don't, don't speak in Hebrew. Because, you're gonna, you know, the people are going to get scared and terrified. And he says, well, hey, what do you think I'm trying to do? That's exactly what I want. I want them to know that they are going to die, that they are going to be destroyed. And, uh, you know, so he's very interested in, in sowing this uh, fear, this terror in the life of... And, and you know, believers, that, that is one of the things that we need to know. Even, even now in our nation and in the world... When we are fighting for the very soul of the church in so many ways, this is a time of spiritual warfare for this nation. I think it's a time of spiritual warfare for the world. And Satan wants to make us feel that somehow he has won the battle. That, um, you know, it's all over. The culture wars have been fought. We have lost. So let's just uh, enter into our monasteries and stay inside and uh, wait until this whole thing works itself out. And I see so many believers in this time in America um, adopting this attitude of fear and internalizing the very um, mental strategy that the enemy has been uh, mounting against us. And uh, this is not the time for the church of Jesus Christ to adopt a timid attitude. This is not a time for the church to ingest and to internalize 
the lies of the enemy. He will tell us that he is too powerful to be resisted, that the church is in retreat, that we are captive, that uh, this and that, and, you know, don't, don't preach the gospel, lower the tone, uh, don't confront, don't scandalize, make your sermon vanilla flavor, don't be too specific, don't denounce sin, because that inures to his interest. It inures to his uh, intentions. And I tell you, whenever you find yourself in battle, the first thing you need to do is to do the very opposite of what your emotions incline you to do. You need to stand on the word of God. You need to stand on what he, had, he has declared. In the case of America, the Lord has said, the, the, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. The church will not be destroyed. Your life will not be destroyed. Your life will stand the test. If you stand on the word of God, if you look toward him, if you believe what he has declared. It's interesting that as, as uh, this uh, man continues to insult the people of God, there's a little verse there that caught my attention. Verse 21, chapter 36. When he's saying, who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But here's what verse 21 says. But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply. Because the king had commanded, do not answer him. And it tells me something about, again, about spiritual warfare. You know, um, what, the king, what King Hezekiah is saying, hey, don't get into a struggle with him. Don't start insulting him back or, you know, saying this or saying that or, you know, whatever. Don't just stay silent. Be still. And, you know, that is one of the things that the Bible says over and over again. I, I think, for example, even as I said now, be still and know that I am God. The Bible says you will, you will uh, preserve in perfect peace those whose thoughts uh, center themselves on you. You know where, where the source of our power is? In standing on the word of God. Believing what God has said. Resisting the enemy. It is not so much, you know, I am, I am, I am sometimes uh, somewhat skeptical when I see people who are only too anxious to fight against Satan, to go head, head to head with Satan, to continually rebuking him, continually fighting him, um, you know, insulting the enemy, and on and on. This is not what the Word of God says. There are many passages that says, you know, Satan, what you have to do with Satan is you resist him. You declare the Word of God. You stand your ground. You resist in the name of Christ and at some point, he has to flee. And uh, this is, I think this is the strategy that we need to use because Satan is perfectly wanting for you to fight him. He loves fighting. I say he's like the Hulk. The more things you throw at him, the stronger he becomes, the more angry he becomes. And uh, I, I think of Ephesians chapter 6, that famous passage about the armor of God, 6.10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. What do you do in the time, in the evil day when Satan is attacking the church or your life? You stand. You stand your ground. You stand on your identity as a child of God. When Satan is accusing you, you say, the Lord has justified me. When Satan is telling you that he's going to kill you, you should say, the Lord has said, you shall not die, but you shall prosper. When Satan has said, the Lord has forgotten you, you should say to him, Jesus has said, I am with you every day until the end of time. You stand your ground. You stand on the word of God. Your spiritual warfare is to fill yourself with the word, with the declarations of the Lord, with your identity as a believer. God has sealed you forever. He has put his stamp on you. And as long as you have recourse to Jesus Christ, no one can take away your identity. No one can wrest you from the love of God. That Satan cannot, by definition, trample you and destroy you. 
You may go through times of trial and stress, as Hezekiah did. I don't know how many weeks this thing went on. But resist. Stand your ground. Proclaim the word of God. Remember and rehearse in your own mind who you are truly in the word of God. Take your stand against the evil schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. Spiritual warfare. That is really where the, the battle lies. It's not in circumstances. It's not in economic situations. It's not political systems. It's not Trump or Obama. It's not uh, whatever strategies men devise or whatever injustices you know, we may be facing. It's not about that. It's, all, it's about the demonic powers that are behind, trying to destroy humanity, trying to have their way on God's creatures. And verse 13 says, therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to what? To stand your ground. And after you have done everything, what? To stand. And then verse 14, stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, etc., etc. These, these, these are the, uh, the, this is the weaponry. This is the defensive um, mechanism that you need to use. And you use the word as a sword because you're declaring God's word. And that God's word has power. And as you announce it, this is why you need to know the word. This is why you and I need to become familiar with the word of God. You need to memorize the word of God. You, you need to be steeped in it. I know a lot of Christians who, who want to be powerful in the Lord. They want to be effective, but they don't read the Bible. They, they, they're not familiar with the, the uh, paradigms and, and the themes and the characters and the principles and the commandments and the books and the narratives of the Bible. I'm telling you that the, the most important thing that you can do as a believer is to know the Word of God and to become configured and uh, formatted by that Word. You repeat it over and over again. You, you read it over and over again, knowing that uh, there's a connection that you establish just by the very virtue of simply reading the Word and getting into your mind and getting your thoughts colored by the Word of God. Because that Word, in times of, stri of stress and trial, that is what is going to be your weapon against the enemy. That's what you're going to hurl against him. You're going to declare the word of God. You're going to, uh, you know, denounce his lies by opposing those lies with the word of God that is in your mind. Okay? So that, it's very important. And this is why this idea of not, not responding to the enemy's uh, disinformation technology and his uh, uh, trying to instill fear in us is so important. Because you need to counter that. With this word of God that is in you. So Hezekiah says to them, don't answer him. Just stand and let him say whatever he wants. This is not, we, we're not powerful enough to confront him. So I, I want us for a moment to um, look, look at, uh, well, let me just before that, let me just say this. I, we need to identify this spirit of um, Sennacherib. That's the, the king of a serious name. And we need, it's important for us to under, be able to understand this passage fully, to understand that this is not, uh, as Paul says, this is not about uh, flesh and blood. This is not some territorial power trying to just acquire new pieces of land. This is really a demonic entity, a demonic power speaking through the king of Judah, of, uh, of uh, Assyria, trying to intimidate and destroy the people of Judah. Because if you see it just as a king, a simple king, a human being, a, a, an army of a foreign country, I think you will miss all the, the content. And this is why I think this passage is so important for our time. And I believe also that even as we begin this coming year, and I, be, I, I think that this also has a, an implication for this year that we are initiating as well, that this is the stance that we need to, as a congregation, be more than ever uh, clear on, on what we are engaged on, truly. This is not about um, just, uh, you know, the city and all the business of the church. This is more than that. I think God is telling us something about spiritual warfare and how to wage effective spiritual warfare in a time where, unlike any other time in the history of humanity, Satan has been given freedom to move and to operate 
in the human realm. And so you see that this, uh, this uh, man, this general, speaking for the spirit behind him, which is uh, uh, the king of Assyria, you know, he's full of this, uh, what I call a Luciferian pride. Lucifer, Satan, another name for Satan. Because this is what defines Satan. Pride, arrogance, haughtiness, and rebelliousness against God. This is the essence of the Luciferian spirit. And um, this is what, uh, you know, there's a passage where I think uh, uh, this general and and the king are identified as satanic spirits that are channeling the same energy that Satan uh, emits, which is, of uh, again, rebelliousness and haughtiness. Look at um, verse 24 of chapter 37. This is the message that the Lord sends against this, this king. And, and it says, verse 24, 37, By your messengers you have ridiculed the Lord, and you have said. And if you read the Bible, this is why I think it's so important, again, to know the Bible. Because as soon as you read this, associations should be coming into your mind, particularly two passages, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which are two passages that throughout history the church has considered passages that have to deal with uh, Satan and the origins of Satan as Lucifer, as uh, God's archangel who became arrogant and rebelled against God and God cast him out of heaven and became the being that we know as Satan. And it says, and you have said... With my many chariots, I have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its junipers. I have reached its remotest heights, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. That is uh, Lucifer's language. That is the Luciferian heart expressing itself. If you look quickly at Isaiah 14, that's why I say it's a very complex passage, but that's why you need to be able to navigate the Bible this way and to, and to make reference to these passages. So in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 14, again, as I say, it's a famous passage considered to be one of those passages that gives revelation about Satan's origins. Here's what um, uh, God says. Actually, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. That is Lucifer. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, this is what, um, again, Isaiah says about uh, um, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly and the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So you see, uh, in, in, uh, returning to uh, Isaiah 37, there's this same kind of thing. Your messengers have ridiculed the Lord. You have said, with my many chariots, I have ascended the heights. It's the same, the same literary language, if you will. It's the same kind of expression of this being that ascends to the heights, that conquers, that destroys, that does whatever he wants, that has acquired huge heights of uh, uh, grandiosity, of greatness. And this is why... It is legitimate, I think, for me to believe that this is really um, a demonic spirit manifesting himself, attacking this pious king, this nation that is seeking the Lord and expressing the heart of Satan. And I believe that this is why, in order to understand this passage completely, we must understand that God is speaking to us about spiritual warfare in a time where we are now. And, and that this has something to do with uh, Lion of Judah. Uh, for us, this, this message is for us and for me as, as, the, as your spiritual uh, leader, if you will, as your senior pastor. And for every leader in our congregation. That uh, we, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. A Lion of Judah, by its very nature, by its very name, is a church that is engaged in spiritual warfare. You will remember that uh, this church and our coming to Boston is birthed on a dream that I had 30 years ago where I saw these, uh, these uh, tarantulas, these giant spiders resting over the, the skyline of Boston, in, uh, influencing and exerting um, control over the city. 
And uh, you remember, I, as I, above them, I saw this face of a lion looking down upon that scene, and in his own way, saying, I have control. I, I am in control. It's not, it's not the, those demonic entities. And three times I said from where I was in the dream, uh, standing on the ground, pointing to the lion, you are the Lord, you are the Lord, you are the Lord. And that's what initiated our coming to Boston. And that's what initiated the name of this church was we changed it from Central Baptist Church to Congregation Lion of Judah. And so we have come to Boston as an entity of spiritual warfare. And we have been engaged in spiritual warfare before we even got here. And I could tell you many situations that made it clear that we, have, we had come as a, a, an invading presence of the kingdom of God to Boston to do spiritual warfare against injustice, against the deforming influence of Satan. And many of the things that we do in, in, in this church, the things that we do with street people and people who are homeless, the things that we do through our social ministries, the different missions, uh, endeavors that we engage in, this is all about the kingdom of God advancing, about declaring the goodness of God on people who are oppressed, people who are um, under the influence and the control in many ways of this demon that wants to destroy, kill, steal their lives. And Lion of Judah, whether we want to accept it or not, whether you're aware of it or not, we are in a sense, with differences of course, like Judah, um, we are under spiritual warfare. We are a threat to the enemy. And we should expect and we should know that we are in an, a controversy with the demonic. I have never deluded myself about the opposite. I know that we need to be vigilant. I know that God has a plan, has an intention for this congregation. And you are this congregation. Each one of you, myself, we are part of this army. Do not take yourself lightly. This is why when you hear me say, for example, come early, Come and, and, and come on time to the service. You know, people might say, wow, man, look, he's just, instead of saying uh, Happy New Year, he's beginning with a negative uh, declaration. You know, God's people are so innocent these days. And uh, we, we are so politically correct. And pastors are sometimes possessed. We are sort of inundated with this cloud of uh, correctness and gentleness and you know, just sheer kindness. All of these things are good. But, you know, the church of Jesus Christ is before anything an army. We are at war. We need order. We need discipline. We need truth. And, yes, all of that should be laced with grace and love. But I'm afraid that we have forgotten the martial, the military nature of the church of Jesus Christ. And the fact that we are at war. Many times we... we Engage in all kinds of declarations in our services. Um, we bind the enemy. We declare freedom for those people who are on the streets fighting for their lives. We bless children and youth. And we weaken the power of Satan over the city and over its neighborhoods and over its people. And over its universities and health systems and, and uh, their cultural institutions. We are engaged in that. And know that that is precisely what Satan will resent and he will try to come against any way that he can. He will try to kill the baby before it is born. We have been engaged in, in over many years in spiritual warfare. I know that for my own life, I know that for this church and its destiny that God has for it, there is a controversy in the heavenlies. And it is a controversy that will only be resolved in God's moment, in God's time, and in God's way. And meanwhile, we need to just simply do what we do. We continue serving him. We continue doing the business of the church while we wait for him to do what he has said he will do. When you see me here, you know, being a pastor, and you see us conducting the business of the church with a capital C, deep inside my spirit, I know that it's all just a rehearsal. It's all, in a sense, ultimately symbolic. It is simply while we wait for what God will do 
for what God has said he will accomplish. I don't know whether he'll accomplish it through my life or through somebody else who might one day substitute me, but I know that God has a purpose for this congregation. God has declared certain things for this ministry. And we must be faithful. We must uh, resist. We must stand our ground. We must wait patiently on the Lord. The Lord is a systems thinker, by the way. He doesn't do anything until he's sure that all the pieces are in place. We want to rush him. We get impatient. We feel that we're getting old. We feel that time is passing and nothing is happening. But I've learned over the years that the call of God's people, we, we don't know ultimately what is fully in God's mind. This is why we need to be disciplined. We need to be patient. We need to stand on the word. We need to believe what God has declared. Meanwhile, we do what the people of Judah did. We don't answer the enemy. We simply stand on what God has said. We do the business of the kingdom. We're faithful. We stand on the word. We do our best. We live a life of excellence. This is what I said, I remember, as a matter of fact, last year. You know, we need to just remain faithful. We need to stand. Because God has his ways, you know. When you look at all the, the, the moments in, you know, the, the, the defining moments in the history of God's people, whether it is Moses at the age of 80, finally being called to do what God has told him that he would do when he was young. Moses killed that Egyptian when he was about 40 years old. And he felt that, you know, he needed to do something because, you know, time was passing. And so I need to start a revolution here. And, and uh, he thought that the, the people of Israel would rally around him the, the, who were captive in Egypt. No, on the contrary, they threw him out. They, uh, he was out there for 40 years in the desert thinking, I missed it. I missed, uh, made a mess of my life. And at the age of 80, God calls him to do the work that he has destined for him, that he had saved him for before the birth in his mother's womb. Abraham, at the age of 75, is told that he's going to have a child through his barren wife. He has never had a child. At the age of 75, and then God takes 25 years to accomplish that promise. And Abraham gets impatient at one point and says, God, you've told me I'm going to have a child, and time is passing by, and my wife, you know, is shriveling up already. And, I, you know, if, if, you're, if we're not careful, my, my um, servant is going to inherit all this wealth because we don't have anybody to inherit the wealth. And so he's like, you know, saying, hey, man, you've told me something. Where, where's, come on, where's the beef? When, when are you going to deliver? I'm dating myself, by the way, in saying that. And, um, you know, God takes a sweet time. And then at the age of 100, gives him Isaac. And we have been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to come. And as a matter of fact, the, the, the believers in Acts thought that Jesus was going to come very soon, right then and there. Maybe the apostle Paul himself thought that. And yet here we are in the year 2019, getting on 2020, and he hasn't come yet. And the Bible says that for God, one day is like 1,000 years, and 1,000 years is like one day. He... he God knew of quantum physics before we ever did. Time doesn't make sense. It has no relevance to him. Neither does space. God lives in his eternal present. And this is why we need to be faithful. We need to be patient. We cannot trust our minds. We cannot trust our emotions. We cannot trust ourselves when we feel discouraged. We cannot trust ourselves when we're questioning, why is all this time? I'm praying, praying, praying. Nothing happens. And time is passing by. You have, to, you have to understand that you serve this mysterious God who will not allow himself to be rushed by your impatience and your fearful heart. God does what he's going to do whenever he's going to do it in the way that he's going to do it. And your call is simply to stand, be patient, uh, ground yourself on his word and on his declarations, throw the word of God against the enemy over and over again and against your own doubting mind, and to live as the word of God calls you to do, not according to your emotions. Amen. Do not trust your emotions because God may take more time than you ever thought that he was going to before he accomplishes what he has promised you. And Lion of Judah, God is saying to you, be patient. Live in the patience of a believer. Do not let your dreams be uh, abandoned. Simeon, 
has lived all his life on a word that says that he will see the Messiah before he dies. And he sees him when he's ready to die almost, when he's an old, old man. And so does Hannah standing there. She's over 100 years old. And she sees the, 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 the Messiah that has been promised for thousands of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, this, this, this strange being that will deliver mankind. And finally, at an old age, she sees. People of God, God is saying to us, you know, when you're engaged in a time of trial and tribulation, some of you I know have been praying for things to happen in your life. You have been waging warfare on behalf of a child. You have been drinking of the, the, the bitterness of a bad marriage. You have been praying for a stray husband or, or a stray wife for a long time. You, God has told you that you're going to do wonderful things, that you're going to accomplish great things, that you're going to go somewhere. And you've waited and you've prayed, you've been faithful, you've tithed, you've served the Lord. It hasn't happened yet, but the Lord says, wait. Declare the word. Be faithful to me while you wait. Do what you need to do. Don't despair. I am coming. I am arriving. I do not lie. I make perfect sense. When I promise something, I accomplish it. So again, you know, Hezekiah, as I, as I wind up, Hezekiah is engaged in this, uh, in this battle. And the last thing I want you to look in this passage, and I hope that you will then, uh, in your own time, you will go back and read this passage. Make it a, the object of your study. Make it the base of your study this week, Hezekiah's life. And try to glean and extract as much teaching and content as you can from these chapters in Isaiah 36 and 37. You know, I, I'm intrigued and, and impacted by Hezekiah's journey, his spiritual uh, um, trajectory, if you will, throughout this passage. When, when the king says, uh, uh, when, when King um, Sennacherib says all these things that he's going to do, um, Hezekiah is confounded, he's filled with fear and with uh, agony, and he sends his messengers to Isaiah, the prophet, because he knows that there's a prophet in the kingdom who hears from God and that transmits God's words. And it's so important about, you know, having the gifts of the Spirit and the power of God in the house when the house is in danger. And so Isaiah sends his messengers to um, uh, the prophet uh, Isaiah, excuse me, Hezekiah sends his messengers to the prophet. And here's what, what he says, Get, tell him this, tell him this. Uh, verse 3, 37, 3. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. As when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. And here it says, it may be that the Lord your God. He's speaking to uh, Isaiah. He's saying, it may, be, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words of the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by what he says. Um, it may be that the Lord your God... You see, Hezekiah, he loves the Lord. Hezekiah is a God-fearing man. Hezekiah has really done a lot of good. But he doesn't have a personal, intimate relationship with God yet. He feels that he needs to remit his cause to Isaiah because Isaiah is really the anointed guy. Let him pray for us. And maybe his God will hear and, and see that this guy is uh, insulting him and he will act. You know, it, it's so important to understand that. Where are you in your relationship with God? Where am I? Are we capable? Do we just know of God? Do we just hear nice stories in the Bible and we come and we kind of say amen half-heartedly and half-convicted? Or do we really know this God? Are we really at one with the Word and the Spirit of God? Are we, are we really... Um, uh, in, in relationship with him. Because that's really, that's really very, very important for us to understand here that, you know, unless you know, unless you've had direct dealings with the Lord, you won't be able to stand the stress of battle. 
Now, here's the second stage in Hezekiah's journey. This is the second stage. And, and you will find it in verse 14 of chapter 37. The first one, you know, he says, go to, his, to uh, Isaiah, ask him, tell him what, you know, that we are in dire need. And Isaiah actually responds, says, the Lord says, don't worry, I will, he will hear a rumor, he will leave, he will not enter, he, you, you're safe. And that's exactly what happens. If you hear, read the rest of the story, um, he hears, um, he hears uh, that, he, he hears a rumor that there's an attack coming against the king of Assyria, and he leaves Israel for a moment. He leaves uh, Judah for a moment. And um, it, it appears that everything is okay, but then the king of Assyria sends back a message again and says, hey, you think you're free, okay? You think you're fine? No, that's not the case. I will come, and I will destroy. He sends another declaration of war. And, you know, this is something, again, about when you're in spiritual warfare, do not think that just because you prayed once or twice, the enemy is going to kind of release you and let, let you go. It's a, it's a battle of wills, and it's a battle of he who believes the most. That's who wins. He who resists, he who stands, he who sustains the struggle, that is the one who's going to win. And this is why the Bible says, resist, resist the enemy, and he will flee from you. You have to tell him, I will not abandon my post. I will stand on what the Lord has said. Because sometimes, you know, you feel that, okay, you have the victory, and then the, Satan comes back with a sucker punch when you lowered your guard and then really gets you. So you have to remain in the battle. And so the second time that the enemy says, I'm going to destroy you, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and Hezekiah again comes into great uh, tribulation. And, but this time, look what he, what he does. 37, 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. It's no longer ask Isaiah to pray for us. No, he was the king. He is the priest. He is the head of uh, the, the nation. He is the authority. It is he who God wants to hear from. And he gets it finally. And he comes to the temple and lays out the document at the feet of the altar. This is what you and I need to do. Remember, my brother, my sister, you are fighting for something in your life. If you're a human entity, there are things that you are fighting for and, and against. There are dreams that you, there are loved ones. There are situations that you're facing in your life. You, you are, if you're a mother, you are an authority over your children. If you're a father, you're an authority over your home, over your children. If you are a single person, that home where you live, that is your territory. It is your career. It is your destiny that you're fighting for, and you have authority over it. It's not the pastor. It's not the, the deacon. It's not the elder. It's not that spiritual person that you call to say, pray for me. No, you have to wage your own battles. You have to cultivate knowledge of the Word of God. You have to cultivate intimacy with the Lord. You have to know who this God that you serve is. And you do not get to know that unless you have dealings with him. Unless you uh, engage in prayer in the morning and at night. Unless you read the word. Unless you mine the word of God for those nuggets of wisdom and counsel that you require in your life. You need your own medals. You need to acquire your own rank spiritually. You need to believe in the authority that God has given you. I think it's good to ask people to pray for you. I think it's good to have community. Of course it is. I ask people to pray for me all the time. And I, I revel in people praying for me. But I know that there is a responsibility that I have that I cannot delegate to anybody else. I need to become a mature believer. I need to ground myself in the word of God. And sometimes God will allow struggles in your life just to teach you the art of war. But you don't get it, so he just keeps sending war at you. Unless you learn the art of war and spiritual warfare, you will not go anywhere. I believe that one of the biggest problems and the weaknesses of American evangelicalism is precisely that. It has not been bred for war. It has been bred for, you know, kindness and, and uh, you know, grace and niceness and, and, you know, just gentleness. 
But this is the, these are the days of Elijah, people of God. We sing that chorus and we don't understand what it means. These are days where Jezebel and Ahab are in control more than ever. And you need the, the, the raw, rough, bad breath spirit of Elijah in the land. And uh, those nice evangelicals are being thrown to the side over and over again. They're abandoning the battlefield by droves because they have not been trained for spiritual warfare. They have not been trained for prophetic understanding of the word of God. They have not been steeped in the, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They do not have a war mentality. They have a peace mentality. This is why the Bible says that when the, and when the Israelites went into the, into the land of Canaan, God left those enemy tribes to teach them the art of war because they didn't know, they didn't know war when they were in 40 years in the desert. And they needed to be trained because a nation needs to know about war. So God allowed the, an artificial permanence of enemies in the land in order that they would learn how to fight. Isn't that a mystery? Read that. It's in the Bible. God allows many times Satan to do things in our life because he wants to steal us. He wants to strengthen us. He wants to harden us. And spiritual warfare is not pretty. It's not gentle. It's not nice. There are times, as Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for peace and a time for war. There's a time for love and, yes, there's a time for hate. Hate of the enemy. Hate of evil. Hate of the, the demonic stuff that is in people. And you need to resist that demonic stuff. As Jesus resisted Satan in, in Peter's uh, spirit when, when Peter uh, tried to dissuade him from going to the cross. And so God is saying to us as well, Lion of Judah, you, 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 you and myself become steeled for war. I have not called you. This is not a time of peace. This is a time for you to learn my word. This is the time for you to adopt a military spirit. This is what God is calling the church in this time. And those who are not able to, sp to wage proper spiritual warfare with the proper attitude will be bold, will be run over by the enemy. You are at war. We are at war. This church is at war. And we need to commit our faith to the Lord. And we need to lose our innocence we need to steep ourselves in the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to know how to rebuke the enemy when he comes like a flood against us. We need to know when to stand in the word of God. We need to acquire the heart of a warrior. And I believe that this is what God is saying. I believe that God will destroy the enemy. I believe that we may be on the verge of major breakthrough. Of Satan being completely held back so that the church can sack the house of the strong man. And we can bring thousands of souls into the kingdom. Because this is what happens here. What is the destiny finally of this man? I'll tell you, and I'll jump to that now for the end. Look, look what happens. Um, verse 33. Therefore, this is uh, 37 33. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. This is the verdict, the decree that God sends to the people of Judah. He will not enter this city, he will not shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. And not only that, not only does he say he will not accomplish any of those stupid things that he says he will do. And look what God does, verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And one day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch. How ironic is that? That this, this spirit that has been uh, raging, raging against uh, this god, he's, he, while he's worshiping this his own false god talk about spiritual dynamics and spiritual warfare while he's worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch his sons Adramelech and Sharazer killed him with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat and Esarhaddon his son succeeded him as king do you know that if you look look up, up in wikipedia 
uh, Sennacherib. And you will see that that's exactly what history tells us. He was killed by one of his sons, at least. Uh, and there's the complexity of history when you know it. I think I, I trust this newspaper rather than the other one. His two sons killed him. And it, the history says that his son, and there, is, uh, uh, there are documents that suggest that, yes, he was killed by his children. And this guy who says he inherited his kingdom is the one who ruled after him. This is history. But we know the, 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 we have the MRI, we have the inside of history as well. And so my people, people of God, let's stand for a moment. And uh, let, let's, uh, you know, uh, maybe we can sing one of those two songs. There's a couple of beautiful songs that we sang of spiritual warfare. And, you know, whether it's the God of this city or the other one, there's another one. Uh, that was there. Yeah, yeah, come, come forward. Come forward, please. Come. Again, you know, my, my, my hunger, my desire, my desperation for you, my beloved English ministry. I, I want to see an English ministry that is as powerful, as anointed, as warlike. And forgive me for saying this. As I see in the 12 o'clock service, the, the Hispanics, we have our own flaws and our own weaknesses. Believe me, I am very aware of that. Uh, Latinos need a lot of help from the Lord, just as the Africans do back in Africa. These anointed people, humble people, uh, they, they, you know, it's like a match box. You throw in a little and it just flares up. And I want this for you and for us. We're making progress. But my desire in the Lord, for you. I, I want the day to come when I walk in in the morning and the place is on fire for the Lord. Where, where the, the atmosphere is clean and free. And it's like there's a perfect connection between heaven and earth. And I crave uh, people who know how to wage spiritual warfare, who are desperate for the Lord who are hungry, who are dangerous to Satan and hell, a people who can flow freely in the spirit, a people who, who hear from God, a people who are not afraid to worship and to come forward and to take their shoes off and dance before the Lord, whatever. I don't want it to depend on me to sort of, you know, raise dust and get you, you know, harried up and, you know. No, it has to be you. You have to take yourself seriously. The, the beauty of this uh, service and, and its anointing depends on you, not on me. I'm not the cheerleader here. You, you have a responsibility in your life. I crave and I pray right now and I prophesy over this gathering a, 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 an atmosphere full of the fire of God. Full of people who know their God, who have fought their own battles, who have their own wounds of war who have their own medals, who have their own achievements, and who have their own war stories to tell because they've been there and God has delivered them. They have seen the reality of this God. And so I prophesy over this gathering that this will become a reality in your life and in the life of this particular configuration of Lion of Judah, that we will become more and more even. And I prophesy over the Latino congregation as I tell them also, you know, we, we cannot have congregations where there are pockets of cold and hot and of, uh, of enlightenment and uh, cluelessness within a congregation. God is leading us to uniformity in the spirit. In the, he wants us to all be a fire, a glow for the spirit of God. Warlike people, military people, anointed people, wounded people who know about war. And who do not fear the enemy because they have fought him and they know that he has feet of clay. That he is vulnerable. And that the word of God is more than powerful to destroy his wiles and his techniques and his strategies. So I want you to call out that spirit now. Begin to call out. Let me hear your prayer right where you are. Say, Lord, anoint me. Lord, anoint our church. Lord, deliver congregation Lion of Judah. Lord, Thin the atmosphere on top of us, Jesus. Amen. Fill our spirits with the war-like martial attitude of a warrior. Father, we, we pray that the inertia will be completely destroyed and annihilated. All the resistance of the enemy. Oh, Jesus, we pray for an anointed people. Come, begin with me, Lord. 
Oh, Father, create for yourself an army. Create for yourself a politically incorrect army. Not afraid to utter and declare your truth, Jesus. Oh, Father, put the fire of the Spirit in us that we might wage war that is effective. We declare that Satan has no power, that Sennacherib is destroyed, that he will be humiliated and humbled and held down by the power of the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. Oh, Jesus, we believe that you have shed your blood and that you, in, in the cross, you defeated the principalities and the powers and you exhibited them publicly. You humiliated them and you have won victory for us. And we live and move in that history. Jesus, we declare that this church will not only not die, but it will live, it will thrive, it will prosper, it will grow, it will do exploits for you, Father. And we will rest souls from the enemy and we will bring them into knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this haughty, arrogant spirit will be humiliated and shown to be what he is, impotent, a liar. We denounce the lies of the enemy. Hallelujah. We declare, Father, that what you have said will come to pass and that you will revive uh, the spirit of the Puritans. You will cleanse and, and uh, open up those uh, uh, wells that have been closed down over the years. Hallelujah. We say dry bones come together and, and receive the life of God and, and let those, those uh, bones and those muscles and those tendons come together and form a living being. Let the, the tissue come over the bones. Let the skin come over the tissue. Let the brain be activated. Let the spirit be activated. Fill them with your spirit, Father. Breathe on your people the life of your spirit. Father, we, we, we believe in you too much to stand and to stay where we are. Father, Holy Spirit of God, come, fill us, fill us, fill us anew. Come on, you got to begin. You got to do what I'm telling you to do. You are responsible. You are responsible. not me up here. You call out the Spirit of God. You declare. You release God's will for this moment and for this time. In Jesus' name, Father, we release your spirit. We release your glory. We release your word. Father, no more meekness before the enemy. We are warriors and we adopt. We, we embrace our warrior identity. Jesus Christ, do your work. We have no power by ourselves. We know that. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are invincible. Oh, hallelujah. Father, empower your church over the nations. Empower your church over the nations. Reason has no power over God's decrees. Intellect has no power. Human agency has no power. It is your holy, eternal, irresistible power. That's what we declare. And Jesus, you will have your way over the nations. You will have your way over history. What you have declared will come to pass. It will happen. And we embrace it. We welcome it. We say, yes, Lord, do it. Do it, Lord. Do it. Hallelujah. Embrace it, people of God. No more meekness. No more false humility. No more false grace. God doesn't want that. He wants the power. He wants a desperate people. Yes, penetrated by love, but martial and warlike and militant in their belief. And that is what we embrace, Father. We thank you. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord.